Welcome to Market Scales, The Trust Revolution, How Trust Unlocks the Future. Hosted by the CEO of White Fox Defense, a global leader in drone airspace security, here's technology entrepreneur, Luke Fox. Hello, and welcome to The Trust Revolution. Today, we are joined by a very special guest. Joining us today is the father of modern time. I first learned about this pioneer a couple weeks ago as I was on a Zoom call developing the cybersecurity standard for drones. One of the foundational elements to that is, of course, synchronized time. And so one of the other experts on the call said, well, we of course have to use the gold standard, NTP. Oh, and by the way, did you guys know that this bedrock of the internet was invented back in the 80s, and those algorithms were maintained by the same guy for decades? Hmm. Now, you're telling me that this device that I'm using to record, and that all of you listeners are using to listen, works because of one man's invention and decades of dedication? I naturally had to learn more. And so the cyberstalking began. A quick Google search confirmed that the story was true, and it produced a picture of a professor standing outside his office door with a vintage, buy-it-once kind of thermos and an old leather briefcase and a warm, natural smile. Here I found the inventor of modern time, Dr. David Mills. Dr. David Mills, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, I'm just curious, you know, as you were part of these very early stages of the the internet, before the internet was even an internet, you were on it. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey as an engineer and computer scientist back in the earliest days of computer science? Like how how did that how did that come about and what what did that journey look like for you? It started with the ARPANET and um uh, we've developed various protocols and algorithms to synchronize time. And that was my my sandbox. <laughs> I had a glorious time playing with ARPANET and the Internet and time. What year was this? 1979. Oh, my goodness. And, like, the Internet that we know today didn't really come out till almost two decades later. I beg to differ. Um, no, tell yeah, tell me. I gave two papers at the NCC conference in 1979. One of them was on a satellite system that I was working on, and the other was called the coming out party for the internet. <laughs> okay, when was the party? Uh, well, probably mean the party, uh, <laughs> coming out party, or the party, the coming out party. Uh, that was called a party of the dinosaurs, and it was in it was in about 1985, and we all met in Boston and had a good time. And I recall that the really rich guy that called the meeting to order supplied the liquor, and it cost <laughs> and it cost him ten thousand dollars. Oh, my goodness. Back then, in the 80s, $10,000 of liquors. Oh, my goodness. The internet, <laughs> no wonder the internet's such an exciting place. <laughs> yeah, tell me about what, what happened at the coming out party of the internet. Well, we had a set of task forces 
various uh, activities on the Internet Development Group uh, had these task forces. Mine was the Internet Architecture Task Force. And we had many others. The most interesting one was in uh, Internet Security. But that was well before the uh, attention paid to what is now a hacker paradise. But what fascinated me was what the accurate time could be used for. And just as an experiment, I synchronized the clock with the AC power grid. Well, there actually, I found three grids. One is the West Coast, the second is Texas, and the remainder of the country is synchronized along with much of Canada to a radio receiver in Ohio. And I could watch the time vary over the hot August afternoon where it would lose up to five seconds. Wow. And and the idea was if, if it started to do that, the operator of the synchronized station would call the various power companies and say, pour more coal on the burner. Pour more coal on the burner. And what yeah. does that mean? To generate more electricity. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> there, that obviously wouldn't scale to the even the ARPANET back then, just the number of computers. There were quite a number. Some of them are mine. <laughs> so later I was curious to see if I could export that technology elsewhere. Yeah. And I propositioned the BBC that I could do a audience rating project based on the power uh, differential when the BBC started broadcasting in the afternoon. Okay. I, I, I was not successful at that, but I tried. And you were trying to test there what the what happens when BBC is broadcasting versus when it's not? Yeah. How that affects time. And so obviously, so just to, like something we take so for granted in modern day because of you is that time is relatively synchronized. When I want to start a meeting, uh, I know my time right when the clock ticks, that's when everyone else's Zoom meeting is going to start. But I also know that the computers, the micro, the I mean, how accurate are we talking? So you're saying before, like before you came along, we're talking like within five seconds, which is pretty, which is a dinosaur age for computers, what they required. What what did you do then uh, after this experiment with BBC to get it more precise? And how precise did you have to get it? Well, it took a while because I had to figure out how to compensate for the uh, internet uh, paths, especially between uh, this country and overseas. So and literally the time for energy to travel, you had to calculate and offset that. Oh, well, I, I that was the end of my experiment with trying to uh, persuade people to use the power grid. Uh, <laughs> what I wound up doing was uh, circle the engineering fraternity and the computer science theory community 
which I greatly enjoyed, trying to develop algorithms that would uh, compensate for the, uh, the disturbances on the ARPANET line uh, throughout the world and try to get the time down to the low tens of microseconds. Wow, which tens was, of microseconds. Uh, yeah, that depended, of course, on the computer operating system and the clock application. I generally did it. Uh, you can keep computers to that precision today using fast computers and elbow grease. That are still using the algorithms, the NTP algorithms that you developed back in decades, many decades ago. 40 years. Scaled. 40, 40 years. Oh my goodness. And so, you know, when we think about time, again, we just, I, I take time so much for granted and just assume that time is just, is fixed. It's an absolute. It's, you know, it, it's like the laws of gravity. But you found that it, it's not and that it's something that is, that needs to be synchronized so at least people are relatively on the same time. Is that is that right? Well, I like to reckon that with implementing a shared uh, symphony broadcast where the various instruments are on different machines and the timing <laughs> is good enough that you can synchronize the play. Yes, how much you how quickly we would realize how important it is to be synchronized when you have a symphony all operating uh, within maybe f- five seconds apart, right? Like that would be a disaster. Oh, uh, a lot of the impetus for doing this was from the U.S. Congress, who was regulating uh, fast trading algorithms. And these are working with microseconds. Trading like for stocks. Yeah. Where billions of dollars could be on the line. Yes. Oh, and so Congress has ma- mandated then for this timing, but the, and then so how does NTP help with that? Well, you keep the time in the broker's uh, computers. Uh, the, the Congress originally said it was two seconds, and I understand now they've reduced that uh, requirement to the low milliseconds. Wow, and still using those funda- foundational algorithms you developed. So I'm curious, when you developed the when you developed NTP, when you were at throwing the the Aeronet uh, party uh, coming out party of the Aeronet, did you realize how much it would shape the future of every bu- single person on Earth? Absolutely not. What were what were people thinking? Like the was the internet just a, a like a nerd's tool to you know talk to each other? Uh, like is that all they thought it would be, or like what at what and in order to compute things, or what was that vision of what what it would become? Well, the most significant activity that I did on that period was have distributed conferences where we would meet as a number of sites that were participating in the internet. And like Friday afternoon, we'd have a conference. We had to develop the software, both for the presentation of vision 
and speaking uh, and broadcast it to a willing participants. Many of the universities sponsored seminars, which were broadcast on the internet to various places, including me. The software could be uh, similar to Zoom, and it was very stressful on the algorithms because <laughs> there are places where the internet uh, links were rather low uh, performance. So the, the deal was to try to compensate for the deficiencies. And I recall the most, one thing gave me the most problem was in Norway. <laughs> What's up with Norway? Well, there's an ARPANET uh, installations in several places in Europe. One of the connections between the U.S. and Europe was via a little telephone line between the <laughs> Seismic Data Analysis Center in Washington and the uh, the arrays of sensors looking for Russian uh, explosions. And All the way across the Atlantic. Yeah. And that, that data link was an ARPANET link that was shared with the early internet. And Wow. Yeah, tell, tell us more. Well, we essentially had the turf of the U.S. departments of various places, including NSF. And so later time, about 1980s midterm, uh, there was a competition to supply gateways for the NSF net that connected five sites scattered all over the country. And I was in that competition and won it. So my <laughs> my uh, uh, product was used for a couple of years. But it was interesting. Um, there was a good deal of technology going back and forth. Uh, one of them was the algorithms uh, that were uh, looked at at least by Senator uh, Al Gore. Oh, yes. Yeah. The inventor of the internet, right? <laughs> oh, hey, that's what he claimed. Huh? <laughs> um, we call it the algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll let him have that. <laughs> well, the, the deal was the the bandwidth on the network was just too small, and we we needed oodles more bandwidth. And it, it took uh, some years when the carriers were laying fiber in the, the uh, uh, center medians of the highways in various places. And eventually they got, the, they got the world together. But as early as 2000, uh, we didn't have much bandwidth. And now we are being told by the carriers that we should buy into very high speed uh, access, but those of us who know better know that what they really want to do is to increase the ability to attract more customers. So, at your home, do you uh, do you have high speed internet? Yeah. Okay. So you you you've bought you've bought into the the ploy at least. Oh yeah. <laughs> I I love it. 
And so I'm I'm curious. So it sounds like your your edge in how you won that contract was the the Al Gore uh, rhythms uh, that you had on the system to manage the fact that there was very low band these bandwidth constraints, but you're getting all this information across really and. Uh, as you said, even before those years before creating your own, essentially zoom your own video conferencing, uh, uh, voice conferencing and video conferencing back in the seventies, which is mind blowing. If after at, when the pandemic happened, if everybody said, well, okay, now you have to go make your own software to talk to everybody. <laughs> That'd be wild. Well, it was some years after we spearheaded the technology so what happened to that technology? Because streaming, you know, I, I know one of the big, um, at the history of streaming, the, bi- the big moment for that was the, uh, the Clinton uh, testimony. Uh, was one of the, the largest streaming events that really kicked off the streaming world. And then, of course, the Victoria's Secret um, event that same year. But that was many decades. That was probably at least 20 years after you, you guys created streaming. Well, we did. Um, a lot of it was driven by what DARPA wanted. My contract was with DARPA, and there was a whole community of perhaps 20 or 30 participants who were computer scientists and engineers. And I like to think of it as tinkering. We, we, we could tinker with the network, and we could break it, but you can't do that now. <laughs> and so I'm curious when you you know being a professor of cybersecurity decades and many decades after you were one of the core pioneers to help build the internet do you do you going looking back what would you have done differently had you known the the risks and how many things would be on the internet and depend on the internet today Well I was chairman of the Internet Architecture Task Force. You were the first chairman, right? Yeah. Which is, it's, I mean, and that's, IATF is, you know, runs the internet. <laughs> For uh, uh, Fast forward today, there's so much. We weren't, we weren't exactly clear on IETF running the internet. The guy that worked for me turned out to be the first uh, honcho of the IETF. <laughs> we were at that time, well, at that time, uh, when it became clear that the internet was going to be a working item, the Academy of Engineering was looking at issues about the protocols. We had, as a group, developed these protocols based on TCP and IP and all the uh, bricks upon which it was laid. The uh, NAS uh, committee looked at alternatives. Politically, it was highly desirable that we used international protocols rather than the proprietary ones we had developed for the Internet. And the personalities and politics of the participants favored using uh, commercial uh, international protocols. Well, th- those of us in the development crew were very uh, suspicious of that. <laughs> and so the committee gave three possibilities. One of them is to kill TCP IP 
and, and <laughs> kill it entirely and replace oh, with uh, international protocols. The second one was let TCPIP run for a while and then shut it down. And the third was let TCPIP become the standard. I had a meeting with some Air Force general who was asking about this. And he said, the reason why we use TCPIP is we can, we can use the software developed in the community and it doesn't cost us anything. That, and that uh, requirement subsisted. Just message to our viewers here. Can you imagine a world without TCPIP? Literally the backbone of the internet? That's what makes the internet. That what would that would that would be hard to imagine. Well, it became so universal that a number of protocols were developed to work upon it, the application layer, and we got so many applications and so many widespread users of the internet, including the government agencies like NOAA, NSF. That was the beginning. I had the most valuable experience and that I had was the ability to use the ARPANET as a development testing function to see if, in fact, the Internet protocol models could survive in the ARPANET, which had different protocols. And I had a lot of fun uh, experimenting with that. I can tell you a lot of stories, but... Well, let's hear just let's hear let's hear one. Vince Cerf and I went to Italy to attend a conference with the European network wannabes. <laughs> Did you say that to their face? Yes. <laughs> so okay. They, so they're the wannabes. You're they, going they, over there. What year was this? Somewhere between 1980 and 1989. But uh, I listened to the presentation that was skill, uh, shifted primarily to getting rid of TCPIP <laughs> okay. in favor of the European protocols. And I listened to it, and Vent Surf listened to it. And I finally raised my hand and I said, Would you consider a mail system based on TCPIP? And they said, No we would use our ISO protocols. And I said, would you use those protocols to print your paycheck? The room just stalled. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, a, that was a high point. <laughs> and their answer, of course, was no. <laughs> what, what, was, what was the, fun, the fundamental, like the edge that TCP IP had? It was free. And it, 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 it existed in... Unix uh, for some years, and it was it was developed by the folks at UC Berkeley, which were kind of uncontrollable but useful. <laughs> How are they uncontrollable? Well, we had arguments on the details of network configuration uh, and the uh, mechanics of the protocols. And ultimately you want, you won out, it seems. Well, I think the 
my DARPA program manager and I won out, but it was a program manager that had the amp, had the ammunition. <laughs> ammunition meaning the money. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly true. Oh my goodness! It was costing fifteen million dollars a year, according to Vent. Fifteen million a year. Yeah, they were putting a lot of work into it. My goodness, and and back then it was just it was a means of communicating like the seismic data from potentially detecting Russian subs. Uh, (laughs) Right. Oh my gosh. Well, this is, this is super, super fascinating. I'm, I'm curious. You've also, not only have you been a pioneer in developing uh, a standardized synchronized time on earth, but also looking at space without getting too technical. Can you tell us a little bit about space time and your journey to understand how we track time in space and why it matters, I guess, just to start off. Why does track, isn't, like, if you take a watch to space, it's going to tell you the time, right? Yeah, but assume that in 2000 that the civilization sparked an extreme explosion. It said, synchronize your watches on Mars, Sun, any place else. And just the idea of trying to have a uniform time, you got to think about it very carefully. Uh, Barycentric time was at the center of the sun. So to develop the local time that's uh, called proper time on, let's say, Mars, you had to start with the center of mass, and you had to account for velocity. And that, of course, did time dilation. And then you had to transfer that to the surface, which had, of course, gravity. And then motion as the uh, planet revolved. And that would give you the uh, synchronization to the center of the sun. Then you had to move from center of the sun to Earth's surface, accounting for velocity at redshift. Red and then shift? transfer that to the center Wait, did of you say Earth. Redshift? Uh, yeah, redshift. What's that? There, that's the gravitational slowing down. Think about it this way. You mentioned earlier uh, a black hole, which has, all, uh, for all purposes, considered its infinite gravity. So the question is, you take a body and toss it into a black hole. To you you can see the body falling into the black hole. Mm-hmm. Right. Outside of the black hole. I can watch that body fall into it. Yeah. However, what does it look like to the body which is entering the black hole? Well, the gravity is essentially infinite. So the body doesn't do anything. It just lives there forever, according to its clock. Hawking had a real dust-up with his friends about whether information is uh, is destroyed in a black hole. And there was a marvelous little tit-for-tat on that. Finally solved was something called Hawking radiation, which is at the edge of the uh, black hole. There's a radiation which could be measured, and that was the way that the information was retrieved from the black hole and transmitted to the inter- the the internet to uh, <laughs> back to earth. Well, I had a chance to 
work on those topics in support of JPL, which I really enjoyed a lot. Uh, besides transferring team around or time around, as I said, there was the issue of how do you synchronize clocks in a constellation of Mars orbiters. And I worked on that for quite a while and developed algorithms which you could synchronize the time in spite of the relativistic attack, uh, effects and planetary motion. And that's in the, I think, the latter chapter in my book. There was uh, experiments done by NASA on the space shuttle, and I heard about these after the fact. They had something to do with NTP <laughs> in orbit. And uh, the, I discovered that the astronauts are very busy. They haven't got time for just about anything. And there was an experiment that they were told to do using NTP. And they did it, recorded the results in a file, and eventually it was sent to me. <laughs> well, I buried it in my database, and I can't find it now. It's there somewhere. Somewhere. What, what is in this file? I don't know. It's the result, <laughs> of, an ex result of an experiment designed by NASA. Oh my goodness! And so, as they're looking at that, is there this? It's just so mind bending. Maybe there's obviously not to you, but that time is so relative, relative depending on where you're at on Earth, relative to your ability to synchronize it on Earth, and then of course going into space that just magnifies exponentially. Well, is a lot there, of it yeah. had to do with verifying uh, Einstein's relativity. And the one experiment I remember was they took a cesium clock, which had an internal battery, and put it in the first-class seat of an airplane that went in stages around the world. When it came back where it started, they, me they measured the time difference, and they discovered that's how they verified the... Uh, e equals MC squared, right? Well, the, the story goes that they were in Fumicino Airport in Italy, and they had to recharge the batteries. Well, they got off the plane and found a power socket somewhere, plugged the charger in, and it blew the fuse. No. So the, the boarding area went dark. Well, they fixed that pretty quick. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so, and did that throw off the experiment? No, uh, they managed to charge the batteries. What was the result of the experiment? Uh, verified the... Uh, was time different from... What well, they wanted to know if the uh, cesium clock was subject to gravity and velocity, what it would be reading when it came back around the world. And they discovered it was a few nanoseconds which agreed with the theory. So it it moved. Did it move forward in time or slow time? Well, it you had a comparison oscillator which was stationary, and then there was this traveling clock that went around the world, and they compared the clocks when they came back, and that agreed with the theory. Wow! Another That's, way of yeah. doing it is the GPS, the GPS constellation, the uh, satellites 
are synchronized to each other and to the earth. And that's, that's not a trivial exercise. No, I, I imagine not. Especially because the satellites are, you're dealing with that same sort of relativity. Yeah, the velocity and uh, gravity involve corrections which are programmed into the satellite computers before launch. They, they have to know the orbits pretty darn accurately. To be able to foresee how time is going to shift for those satellites to correct for that so those satellites can all be on the same relative time as if they were on Earth for Earth yeah. time. So how do we go back in time? What's the secret? Uh, there's no secret. There's no secret? Is there? Is there a... What, what, there's many theories, right? On is is time is going back in time even theoretically possible? Uh, I don't think I should answer that because it's mostly uh, poppycock. Okay. <laughs> okay. Or you just don't want us to know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a reliable source. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, speaking of going back in time, you are quite a historian yourself. Uh, especially around timekeeping. Can you explain to us a little bit about calendars and timekeeping, how they've evolved through different cultures? I mean, there's such a central point. In glorious detail. <laughs> there are, tell me. There are several time scales to tell time in the indefinite past and the indefinite future. One of them is based on the Earth. Uh, orbit around the sun, and that's the atomic time. And then there's the civil time. Wait, is that universal? Yeah, we use the civil time, which is based on Earth rotation about its axis. And now it turns out that the two are diverging, and half the uh, contributors in the community want to use a stable time like TAI. What's TIA? What is that? Uh, international atomic time. Which is based off of the rotations around the sun rather than around the axis? Yeah. The axis is, well, technically a revolution is the rotation around the sun, and rotation is about the axis of Earth. That's the technical terms, which I never can remember. <laughs> Good. Makes me feel better. So you're saying that uh, there's there are advocates in the community that are trying to change how the world keeps track of time. Yeah, well, every once in a while, uh, the civil time is diverging slowly from uh, astronomical time. And about every few months, two years, we have to put a second in the time scale for civil time. This drives people bananas. <laughs> they hate it. They've been trying to get rid of it for many years. As far as I'm concerned, there's no problem. Why? Just use what you get. <laughs> Before the leap second and after the leap second, time is continuous with uh, international atomic time. It's only at that one microsecond where it's, the time is being uh, retarded for the leap second. So if you measure the duration of something that began before the leap second and ended after the leap second, you would see a second discrepancy. But in the, in the scale of things, you have to find something which 
doesn't work if you do the leap second correction and that it works if you get rid of it. And there are various scientists that have been arguing about this for some years. It's like the Y2K uh, for the second. Yeah, well, I have some history there. I was called by the White House, no kidding, yeah. to a meeting in, in uh, D.C. What year? Which, uh, 1999. Okay. Just be, <laughs> the 11th hour. Be, yeah. <laughs> and I, along with my friends in the agencies, including NIST and... Uh, internet, and we were trying to figure out what's going to break when <laughs> yeah. the millennium is upon us. And there's a lot of nonsense that circulated around, but we concluded that there's no problem. Mm. And luckily you were right. <laughs> well, so many people had realized beforehand that their four-digit year was going to change. And I think one of the times that I got trapped in this was in the University of Michigan where I was in graduate school. In any case, we concluded that the domain name system, which is at the heart of the internet, was safe on the rollover. But certain bank transactions, things like that, were not. They had to fix the rollover correctly. Mm-hmm. Well, that could be really bad. <laughs> well, so this is this is how we've seen it here in, in the modern world. How then, looking back, were people keeping time? Were they keeping it track of based off of rotations, the the uh, revolutions or the rotations? I for, now I forget which which one it was. <laughs> but were they doing it right? Uh, I think so. Relative to the errors they could measure. One of my favorites is Modified Julian Day, which is invented by a character, I can't remember his name. And he counted the days by whatever means from a designated time before the Common Era. And that's used in a number of places. There's no, it's based on local noon, actually noon in a designated place like Greenwich Mean Time. And by the way, I was able to stand in the uh, telescope room of the uh, GM, uh, the uh, Greenwich Observatory with one foot in the East Hemisphere and the other foot in the West Hemisphere. Oh, wow. That was thrilling. (laughs) I love it. On the the Great Divide. The other uh, contributors were the Maya, who were very smart in timekeeping. How long they ago had two, were the Maya? They had two, oh, sorry? Well, like, what's the, what, what are we talking here? How long ago was it? Or I should say, what year were they around? <laughs> what are, in, are we talking about? Uh, they reached their peak in about 600 CE. Okay, wow. So we're talking over a thousand years ago. Yeah. And they had two time scales, one of them based on the moon rotation about the Earth. That was a religious time of 270 days. And the, uh, the time they used for planting crops was a time scale based on 360 
days of the year, as we expect. Wow. That Just wasn't like quite right. Us. It wasn't quite right. So they had to add five days, which wasn't part of the calendar. And apparently they used it for grand celebrations. Hmm. When you when you have a rounding error, you might as well celebrate. <laughs> well, it, it worked. So that and that was created thousands of years ago, or well over a thousand years ago, I should say, of this this mechanism of keeping time. So people talk about the end of the Mayan calendar. What 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 is an expert on time and the and the history of timekeeping and specifically Mayans? What do you have to say to that? Is there an end to their calendar? No, it goes on forever, just like ours. It, it just like ours. So where does that come from? Well, the basic time interval is formed from the least common multiple of 270 and 360. And that'll give you a, uh, the entire uh, era. And that's called, see, the day is called a tune. The, and the uh, 50 so or so years of the combined time scales. It's called a cartoon, I think. And they, it was, it's, just, it's a base 20 system, and they have a shorthand for it by using bars and dots. Kind to, of how we keep tracks of days and months and years. Yeah. Okay. And they extended the time to indefinitely to higher and higher multiples of 20. And then they just, and then they just stopped doing it? As far as I know, they 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 keep it's it's still current. Okay. <laughs> I mean, why should they stop? <laughs> Time keeps going, right? Time keeps going. Okay, so the, so you 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 feel confident there's not an end, uh, an apocalyptic end that we should be expecting anytime soon. Well, I don't know who would declare it. The Maya are still around, of course, but I think they have other things to worry about. That's fair, Unfor- unfortunately so, but uh, but fair enough. And so, I'm. Are there other ancient cultures that have uh, that you've seen uh, take the algorithms of the solar system and create different types of time or conflicting time with the, our modern time? Galileo comes to mind. How so? Copernicus, probably the inventor of. The time scale. The location of something in space depends on the time developed by relativity means the accuracy of the time interval was drifting all over the place, according to people who could look at the sunrise and sunset times, as do the Jews and the uh, Arabs, and that that's not very accurate, but that was the time scale which is still used in at least the Shabbat day of the Jewish calendar. The other contributors to the stability of the time scale was Pope Gregory in 1582, who invented 10 days to correct the time and that's the time that we use. It completely changed the 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 amount of accuracy. So it went from being you know ten days off to 
then to seconds off and you you and through your work we got it down synchronized to not within five seconds but within milliseconds is that right uh milliseconds and microseconds and down to microseconds in that case the question is where do you get that reference time from there are radio stations that broadcast time signals which can be picked up by my uh talking watch <laughs> and it's it's within a second that's fantastic i have a radio time code receiver on my uh speaker system which is which is how we determine the time to call you <laughs> i i love it all all going back to uh to your to your work decades ago and your years of dedication well i'm i'm curious just as uh, as one of our final questions here do you feel that uh as you studied more and more about time that the recognition of the subjective nature of it do you feel like that's shaped your perception your own individual perception of time i think i think the best answer is to say that I changed my mind about several algorithms and protocols in recognition of the actual time that I could measure, which, of course, jittered all around because of the network delays and congestion. And that, that circuit, there are two circuits that I, I think are interesting. One of them is the time measured between the U.S. and Norway. It varied all over the place. The, the network was heavily congested. And the trick that I was working on was how to get good time transfer in spite of that. Another one was the South Pole. My, stu my students and I had a, a, a project that was trying to find every place that the Internet first or the timekeeping first happened. In Australia was one example, Norway was another, and I think Japan was another. And the question is, how did they start? So for a while, I had a uh, a table uh, in my office, and my students and I would find a new country every once in a while, which we added to the sum total. And eventually, the last one we found was in Antarctica. As how they measure time in Antarctica? Well, the, the Antarcticans, I guess that's right, uh, wanted to know what time it was. Yeah. For whatever they were using it for. And they got it with a low-orbit satellite transfer NTP. <laughs> so I thought that was that was cool. Oh, I, I love it. That's that is that is so fantastic. And just I want to thank you personally for the work that you've done, uh, your years of dedication, and the the good humor you've brought to uh, to the world, and uh, just the legacy you've created. I'm curious. In our final moments together, what uh, what do you want to ensure everyone hears about the importance of of trust, of time, of things that can seem so objective, but really there's so much relativity to those things that allow us to create a better and more trusting world. One of the more recent and serious work is being done on the uh, security of the service. Can the bad guys in, intrude 
and can the hackers destroy destruct destruct things? And that's been, I think, the most current active community trying to protect NTP from the bad guys. Yeah, so that you, you there's a central point of trust with uh, of NTP that tells the world what time it is and keeps the world synchronized. Yeah, and the time bandits notwithstanding. <laughs> I I love it. The time bandits. Well, hopefully the time bandits can stay off of uh of time and keep us all moving in synchronicity and uh cohesively together. And so I uh, just as a as a quick recap for our audience here, some of the ideas that uh, that I heard and something just so much, so much to unpack. But uh heard you share a bit about how you first looked at using maybe AC power uh, and, the, and the AC power grid to uh, synchronize the first clocks, but those were just so far off from what you needed, and uh, there was difficulty in compensating for the slippage that uh, you then developed your own algorithms to synchron- to create that uh, the symphony of computers, as you put it, that synchronized well beyond any time measure that had been kept previously to the down to the milliseconds and the microseconds that's required to create the modern internet to create even the internet that uh, that was at the uh, that you launched at the internet party back in the 80s and uh, somehow consumed $10,000 of uh, liquor of uh, 80 10,000 of dollars uh, of 80s liquor <laughs> back then and really appreciate uh, hearing how you've really pioneered not just how time is kept on earth but also how time is kept in space and throughout space travel and with the satellites and how we can then start to even understand how what black holes are and how what the time is around and in a black hole. I mean, this has extended from the beginning of civilization all the way to our modern world, this need to keep time and keep a more accurate time. The algorithms that you created have, have undeniably created and allowed the modern world to exist. And so from the bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you. You're welcome. And thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your your insights. It's absolutely uh, a, a treasure to get to hear these stories and to hear your experiences of creating uh, this time as the father of modern time. I'm not the father of modern time. I'm more the uncle. <laughs> Okay. Well, I think there are many out there that would disagree with that, but we'll let you, we'll let you be the uncle. Uh, <laughs> but uh, to all those that are tuning in, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you can join us next time on The Trust Revolution. 